Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly look at the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Yolki, here with Zach. Hi. And with our special guest, Lauren DeYoung Schulman, who had been at the Pentagon and the National Security Council, now works at the Center for New American Security, a think tank here in Washington, and is one of the hosts of a really good podcast called Bombshell. Lauren, welcome. Thanks for having me. So this is one of those interesting weeks where you have things bounce between politics and national security, then back again. And there are kind of three questions that I think have been hovering in the air. So one is, why on earth is a president of the U.S. fighting with a literally pregnant war widow? What was happening in Niger that this poor widow's husband died? And then this kind of bigger question of, is it just Niger or is it Africa? We sort of know the answer that it's bigger than just Niger, that there are U.S. troops everywhere, but why and what are they doing? And we're going to focus pretty heavily on the second and the third, on what happened in Niger and what's happening in Africa. But let's start with the fight. Let's start with what we heard this week. I was very angry at the the tone of his voice and how he said it. Like he, he, he couldn't remember my husband's name. I can only say this. I was really nice to her. I respect her. I respect her family. I certainly respect LaDavid, uh, who I, by the way, called LaDavid right from the beginning. Just so the first was the voice of Maisha Johnson. This is the widow of Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, one of the four American special forces who died in Niger, who's leveling a kind of amazing charge that when she received a call from the president, not only did he not comfort her, but he made it worse, that he didn't know her husband's name, that he kept referring to him as your guy and not your husband, which is kind of amazing. And she's basically saying her already kind of unimaginable pain, this is a pregnant woman with a two-year-old son, was made worse. The second, of course, was President Trump saying, no, 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 no. I knew his name. I have a great memory. I wouldn't mess it up. So we have that piece of it. Then we also have the Niger piece where the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has basically admitted, we as a military don't know exactly why these four people died. We don't know exactly what happened on the ground. And this is kind of the way that he summarized it and said it at a press conference this week. I don't know how this attack unfolded. So that was the voice of General Joseph Dunford. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff talking about Niger. And Zach, you wrote about that press conference for the site. What do we know? What don't we know? And why is it all so murky? It's astonishingly striking to listen to the highest ranking officer in the military say, I don't know what my soldiers were doing. But that's basically what he said over and over and over again, right? So what we do know is that the troops are operating in the west of Niger, uh, near an area that's heavily populated with Islamist militant groups. Uh, the biggest one is Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM. Another one, and the one that killed the U.S. troops in question here, is an ISIS offshoot, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahel, or ISGS. Uh, ISGS is actually quite small. Their manpower is estimated at something like 60 troops. But nonetheless, the U.S. has been helping the government of Niger, which is not one of the most stable regimes in the world, uh, build up its military capabilities in order to deal with AQIM and ISGS and other militant groups operating in the area. They went out on what was supposed to be a reconnaissance mission working with the Nigerian military. These were U.S. Green Berets. They're special forces who are designed to do training. They went out. They spent the night of October 3rd out when the mission happened. Then the morning of October 4th, they were ambushed not once but twice by ISGS fighters. And it took a long time for air support to get there because Niger is a very, very large country. And the U.S. didn't have assets in the area. And by then, three soldiers had died. It took two days to recover the body of the David Johnson, and 
even then, it wasn't clear how long he was alive. He may have been captured temporarily and then executed. We, we just don't know. We don't know how a reconnaissance mission turned into a combat mission. We don't know how ISGS figured out that there were U.S. troops there. We don't know why it took them a really long time to even ask for air support. Nothing about this mission makes sense. The only thing we really know for sure is that a mission that was supposed to be training went terribly awry. One thing we do know is that this village that they went on the reconnaissance mission to had been visited 29 or 30 times before. So this wasn't a random village. This was a village where they felt some degree of comfort. And Lauren, I think a lot of people don't know much about Niger. They don't know necessarily where it is. They don't know if it's big, if it's small. And it's important to understand the mystery and the mission. And could you kind of walk through all of that? Where is it? Why does it matter? So Niger is a country in Western Africa that there are currently about 800 U.S. troops stationed there. And they are doing a variety of different kinds of missions. One, like the kind that they were doing in Tongo Tongo, I believe is the name of the village, where they're effectively doing partnered counterterrorism operations. And there's a few different missions like that throughout the country. There's also an effort there to build a fairly large drone base for intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance support in the northern part of the country, as well as a couple of missions to do what we call building partnership capacity, just building the capacity of Nigerian forces. What's important to know here is that they are surrounded, as you said at the beginning, by a lot of different Islamic extremist groups. And this is one of the reasons that the United States has paid a lot of attention to building the capacity of not only Nigerian forces, but building its own bases in the country to make sure that they are able to support both the French missions in the region, as well as partner regions, or sorry, partner missions throughout the rest of Western Africa. It is the second largest U.S. presence for military forces in Africa behind Djibouti, which has several thousand, but it's one of the growing, I would say, hotspots in the counterterrorism fight, as Senator Lindsey Graham talked about earlier this week. And one thing about Niger, you know, geography can be both a blessing and a curse. And in the case of Niger, geography is a curse. I mean, this is not a small country. It, I think, is roughly the size of double the size of Texas, somewhere in that area. I mean, it's a big, big country. So that's one problem, right? That's the problem just of securing a country that big. But the bigger problem, of course, is where it is. It shares a border with Mali. Mali has had parts of its territory actually conquered and held by al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Before ISIS conquered territory, AQIM did. They were the first terror group that actually accomplished that. They were then booted out by the French, but they've never really gone away. And so you have this kind of porous border between Niger and Mali. There are terror groups operating on both sides of it. The U.S. and the French are trying to hit those two terror groups. But I think it's important for everyone to understand this isn't just about Niger. This is about Niger and Mali. And if anything, Mali might be the bigger threat. Well, not just Mali either, right? I'm looking at a map of Niger right now. Also Libya. Right, which is in the northeast of Mali. There's Algeria in the northwest, which has its own Islamist terrorist problem. And then in the southeast, you have Nigeria. Specifically, you have the northeastern area of Nigeria, uh, which is home to Boko Haram one of the world's largest and most powerful Islamist militant groups. So Niger is a country that has the misfortune of being surrounded by a series of violent conflicts that have some extremely bad actors, which means two things. One, uh, the country's military is pressed and, and honestly not capable of handling these threats without support. And that means that borders can be penetrated, cross-border raids can get their citizens killed. It's a bad situation. Second, it means that this is, in many ways, a really convenient place for the U.S. military to launch its massive counterterrorism mission, considering that since George W. Bush, the U.S. has taken on this mission of fighting Islamist terrorism wherever it is, 
right? Niger is now a place that it makes a lot of sense for the U.S. to be, which is why there's a large and, as Lauren just suggested, growing U.S. presence there. So one thing I think that's interesting to talk about in terms of Niger and really the rest of the African theater, with the exception of Libya and uh, Somalia, is that the United States is not in combat operations there. Uh, they do not have the authority to go on proactive, lethal counterterrorism operations against you know, ISIS, al-Qaeda, any of their affiliates. They're only there to, as you said, train, advise, assist, and sometimes accompany the, their partner forces. Uh, and the, the exception of that is if they come under attack themselves, they're able to do self-defense. But they never are supposed to go out on patrol or on uh, partnered operations where they may contact any kind of adversary. And if they accidentally do, they're supposed to basically fall back and not engage in any form if that's at all possible. So we we talk about these operations as though, you know, this is just a training mission. It's fairly low risk. But at the same time, in a lot of ways, it's a combat operation in everything but name. They are there side by side advising their partner forces who are engaging in combat. And the, the distinction of like, oh, well, they'll just fall back into like the, the safest possible place or they won't actually accompany them. That's not necessarily something that U.S. forces get to decide. I mean, the, the line is always the enemy gets a vote in that, which clearly is what happened earlier this month. I think that's like a, a, an absolutely vital point. One thing that is often, I think, not well understood about the special forces is that they're broken into two groups. There are what's called white special forces, which are the special forces who are assigned to train. You know, Lauren, as you're saying, and I completely agree, that can morph, but at least the intent is that they're training. And then there are black special forces, which is what we think of the guys who kick down doors who are actually trained and designed to hunt terrorists. But those are meant to be two sort of different groups with two different missions. In this case, obviously, they morphed. And one of the things that Dunford faced questions about, one of the things that has been sort of reported since, is that this group, which were white special forces, these were trainers, sort of made themselves black special forces. And that there's this report out there, this has been reported now by NBC over the course of several days, that this mission, which was meant to be training for special forces in, as part of this group, a team of 12 total that was embedded with the Nigerians, suddenly decided to veer off of the training mission and go after a specific terrorist. And it's not clear, did they? It's not clear who ordered it. It's not clear, did anybody know about it in advance? But that's kind of a fascinating thing because you have trainers, you know, as you're saying, Lauren, who sometimes are pulled into combat by other people, in this case, maybe pulling themselves into combat and the results were kind of disastrous. So we don't have necessarily a lot of information about did they make that decision on their own authority? Did they actually make a conscious decision or was it just sort of they were caught up in a moment of momentum where it was hard to turn back from where this was going? Uh, but regardless, like there there would have been no real authority for them to call anyone, you know, absent the White House to say, we want to proactively go after this high-value target ourselves and do status-based targeting against him. That's a, a term of basically the, uh, the U.S. military uses where they can go after a target regardless of whether or not he's threatening them or not, just based on them by vir virtue of who he is. It's like the nice word for assassination. Yes, I haven't gotten over my my U.S. government training yet. I'm still brainwashed in this area. We're going to spend this whole thing trying to like pull out slowly NS, get the bureaucracy wonkery. Oh, I can slowly get the bureaucracy out of Lauren. Um, I guess back to my original point, like they they didn't have the authority to do that. That may have seemed like the right smart thing to do. It may have seemed some like something that they might have like called up somebody and said like, do we have permission to do so? But 
regardless of whether or not the logic of actually going after high vol target in this instance, they had no ability to actually do so themselves and were by no means actually equipped and supported both with the troops that were there or the troops that were in the region, any of the medical evacuation or combat, other combat support elements. They just didn't have them there. Yeah, and when you say equipped, you mean literally, literally, right? like they, literally equipped. They had guns, but not much more. They than had guns. Rifles. They had you know basically pickup trucks, unarmored. Uh, they did not have uh, you know um, air support in the region that was readily accessible to them. And they apparently, from what we understand, did not call and ask for such support of any kind until a good hour, if not later, into the the, the ambush against them. And I think that part of of the chronology. You know, and Zach, you wrote about this, so let me kick this to you, but it's kind of vital, right? So there was a, basically two hours passed between when they were ambushed and when help arrived. You had the one hour till they called in help. It went to the French because the French have uh, air power there. It took half an hour for the French to spin up their warplanes, mirages, then half an hour more till they got to the scene. And we still don't know what the French planes did at the scene. We don't know, did they bomb? Did they do flyovers? And it seems like, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that that part of the chronology is like yet another mystery about this mission. Yeah, I read a report in the Washington Post yesterday that suggested that the French planes didn't do anything when they got there. And the reason why is they couldn't identify who were friendlies and who were enemies. And so they risked killing Americans uh, or Nigerian friendlies uh, when they were flying there. And it took another hour for helicopters to arrive. Helicopters can get closer than airplanes and have a, can do a better job at trying to distinguish friend from foe and provide close air support. The theory that we have right now is that the reason it took them an hour in the first place to call is that there were actually two ambushes from the ISIS militants, or ISGS in this case. The first one, the U.S. troops thought they could handle, and then the second one brought a larger group of enemy forces to bear, and they realized that they were outmatched. This could be an accident. It could be clever planning. The entire thing could have been a ruse by ISGS to try to kill Americans. We don't know. We don't know. And and the lack of knowledge about this illustrates, I think, the subtext of this conversation, which is that when you put American troops who are trained to kill, right, they're trained to train other people, but also fundamentally what military training does is teach you to kill enemies. And you put them in a situation where they might be able to do that and there's limited supervisory authority over them, they're, they're going to do it eventually. There will be some kind of mission creep, not mission creep planned from the top, but bottom-up mission creep where U.S. troops get themselves into dangerous situations, and it's not their fault. It's what they're trained to do, and it's a danger created by having U.S. troops in dangerous situations. And I think, Lauren, you know, maybe you could talk to this. Obviously, your background on both the Pentagon and National Security Council, ISR was, a, was an acronym that's often used about basically drones, drones that are flying overhead, which in theory, if they were armed, might have helped in the fight. But even if they weren't armed, could have at least helped dispel some of the fog so that U.S. commanders could see what was happening, they could see how dangerous it was. And that wasn't here either. Well, we've gotten some report that there was a fairly quickly on site an unarmed drone that was able to go in and provide surveillance over the operation. But kind of a broader point is that, uh, I think it was General Waldhauser in both the posture statement for Africom this year, but also in his- Sorry, who's, who's General Waldhauser? General Waldhauser is the head of uh, U.S. Africa Command, U.S. Africom. General Waldhauser has made the point that we simply do not have the overall ISR support that we need for the Africom theater, and certainly don't have it uh, 
for missions like in Niger where we're not actually in combat operations. Now, there's an issue with this in that there's an unending appetite for ISR everywhere. Nobody wants to do anything in the world without ISR. And I think just for the benefit of people who are not us and don't mm-hmm. follow acronyms, ISR basically meaning drones, and and we'll just talk about it, kind of that word people it's not technically only drones, but but in this case, it, it, it's in this case, it's drones. Yes. There, there are shortages of drones, basically. Right. It, if you are in Iraq or Afghanistan, it's far more likely if you're going out on an operation of some kind that you have a drone not accompanying you in some way to provide surveillance. Then, if you you will almost certainly have one that you can call on if you need it to. In Africa, that is simply not the case. They, I think, they have you know a huge percentage of shortfalls for ISR support as well as other kinds of support. Now, in Niger, would, people are saying that this is most likely a massive intelligence failure. It's not that the troops were necessarily making bad judgment calls, but that they simply did not know how much risk that they would actually be put in. And this is where it's interesting to look at how we talk about these sorts of missions. A training mission sounds really benign, like something that you don't necessarily need a lot of ISR support for, something that you don't necessarily need to provide a lot of oversight for. Whereas a partnered combat operate or all but combat operation where you are going out with partner forces to basically stay behind them and tell them what to do in combat operations that sounds like something that we need a lot more support for our troops for whether it be ISR whether it be medical evacuation or just better oversight from congress of what exactly is the risk and what exactly is the utility of these operations we also have this interesting role played by the french and the french have been in africa obviously for a very long time they had colonial countries that they they governed there and the French were the first to respond. I mean, they sent in first, they got the request, they sent in, in warplanes. And we don't know, you know, Zach, as you were saying, what they actually did. Part of why we don't know it is the legal questions here are, are actually very interesting. We don't know the legal authority under which the U.S. sends troops into countries like Niger and other parts of Africa. And we also don't know always the legal authorities under which countries like France operate. And that's not abstract because in places like Iraq, Syria, the U.S. just goes and bombs and doesn't worry about it. In places like Niger, other countries in Africa, they can't always do that. I mean, it's not always the case that it's as simple as calling the French, the French bomb it. In this particular case, there are legal questions about whether the French could bomb it. And I think that really matters. I mean, there's the question of strategy, the question of tactics, and the question of law. Well, during this whole conversation, uh, there's a phrase, Yoki, that you used at the beginning that's been hanging over my head, uh, which is describing Maisha Johnson as a war widow. And it's true that her husband died in combat on behalf of the U.S. military, but is it a war? We don't have a declared war there. We're not fighting uh, the U.S. government officially. We're not even supposed to be in combat missions. But the inevitable consequence of having this kind of global military posture that we've set up where we're intervening, maybe not intentionally in conflicts, but nonetheless intervening in the counterterrorism efforts of another government means we will be involved in dangerous situations like this. That's the whole point of U.S. troops being there. So is it right to describe Maisha Johnson as a war widow? Is it fair to say that her husband died in a war that the U.S. government started? And what does it mean for us to be constantly involved in these conflicts uh, in places like Niger that aren't wars declared by Congress or even authorized by Congress in any meaningful sense, just the president deployed on his own. 
You know, Zach, you're echoing Secretary Mattis in a way that I don't think he necessarily meant to raise this point, but he he did earlier this week or last week when he made the comment about U.S. troops in these sorts of training missions are putting themselves at risk because war is war. And my immediate reaction and that of a lot of other people was, no, this this isn't actually war there. We have no declared um, authorization for use of military force there. This is not an area of active hostilities. We are in, you know, we are in training operations and uh, advise and assist operations there. So if the Secretary of Defense is conceiving of this as war and Congress is starting to talk about this as a theater where we're going to be engaging in combat increasingly, do we not need to have a broader debate about what are the actual authorities that the U.S. military is operating under? You guys almost certainly both remember, I think it was last year and the year before, the Pentagon tied itself in knots to say that forces who were dying in Iraq and Syria were not in combat. And this drove a lot of people crazy because, of course, they were dying in combat, but they were going to great lengths to describe it as something other than combat for a variety of kind of a pain in the ass legal and um, policy reasons. And I think it's also just worth briefly pausing because names matter so much. David Johnson's name, and this is someone whether, and I think it's a great question, whether we should refer to him as having died in war. He is someone who died in the service of his country. And since names really do matter, I think it's worth pausing to mention the names of the people he died with. Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright. And What's particularly painful about this is there is the military ethos, and and Lauren, you you know it well from your time at the Pentagon, of not leaving a person behind. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a really vital thing, not leaving the body behind, even if it's a body, so the family has someone and some place to go to mourn and and to bury. And here with Sergeant Johnson, his body was missing. They didn't know if he was alive or dead. They didn't know if he was in enemy hands. Ultimately, it was the Nigerian troops who found him, not the American ones. And there was an interesting step that took place along the way, which is— some of, you know, I was referring at the outset to black special forces, the special forces who are designed and trained to go hunt and kill. There was a team of them who were spun up, ready to go to Niger to help find the body, which in some ways, if you wanted to do this kind of mission that this may have morphed into of hunting a terrorist, that group, that second group that was spun up to try to find the body is what should have been doing this, not Sergeant Johnson's group. And it it gets back to, in some ways, just the confusion and, and the tragedy, really. I mean, if this mission was changed somewhere along the way, and you had four people, you know, you both have talked to this, who weren't equipped to do this. It raises this question of, could they have died? Could their deaths have been prevented? And there is this other question, it's a very painful one, but if they made the decision to do it on their own, it's not to say you should blame them for their deaths at all. But it is to say that may have been a bad decision that there should have been some better oversight over. Right. That speaks to the point that Lauren was just making about real authorization and formal structures. And while it is often a mistake to refer to Africa as a country, uh, a point that, uh, Florin, you also made during our pre-show prep is that uh, AFRICOM has very different amounts of authority and assets than other commands in the U.S. military, which means if you want to give these people, that is to say U.S. troops in the theater, combat operations and combat responsibilities or put them in situations where they may sort of accidentally or unintentionally end up in violent situations, you need to resource this more. And if you want to resource it more, you need more formal and clear lines of authority and instruction. And you need to have a bigger public debate about whether you want to spend lives and money that the U.S. government could spend on other things in service of the goals that we're pursuing there. 
Yeah, this is a good comparison to make to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan in terms of you know, Africa being an economy of force theater, which is what General Waldhauser describes it as. Whereas in Iraq and Afghanistan, Secretary Gates, the first Secretary of Defense in the uh, Obama administration and previously served in the Bush administration, made a big effort to have medical evacuations brought down to with one within one hour. So that if you are wounded in combat in Afghanistan, then somebody comes and gets you within one hour, and that has a dramatic effect on your ability to save lives. This is not what happens in AFRICOM. Um, there's been a few stories this week that talk about 10 hours might be the best possible rescue time that you could expect in a lot of these theaters. And that's not what you would expect if U.S. troops were in combat there, but it is what's fairly ex- typical in the AFRICOM theater. And the AFRICOM theater is basically the content of Africa. And U.S. operations there, which we'll talk to in a bit more detail, are big and expanding. There are about 6,000 U.S. troops. Those numbers may go up. And there's a lot of reason, including the words of both Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, Lindsey Graham, a very high-ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, to guess not only that those numbers will grow, but that what they do will get more aggressive and perhaps more risky. This, what you're about to hear, is from this week. The war is morphing. You're going to see more actions in Africa, not less. Uh, You're going to see more aggression by the United States toward our enemies, not less. You're going to have decisions being made, not in the White House, but out in the field. So that was Lindsey Graham. And what he was basically saying is, we, Congress, haven't been paying much attention to this. There's actually been talk where they've said, hey, we didn't even know the U.S. was in Niger, even though they should have. But <laughs> seriously, <laughs> brace yourself because a lot more is coming. I'm sorry, I can't get over a senator saying we didn't know that we had. Was it a senator or was it just random members of Congress? No, no it, was yeah. it was Senator Graham. Like, yeah, yeah. Senator Graham said he didn't know. Senator McCain said he didn't know to the extent that there were numbers of troops there. And, you know, I I, I completely, I laughed hysterically at this as well because they receive regular notifications about not only the training missions that are there, but also just war powers notifications that there are troops in Niger as well as in the region. But I think it's completely fair for them to say, like, yes, we didn't know that they were there and at risk. Uh, A training mission, as we talked about earlier, sounds pretty benign. At risk to a point where you need to think about what kind of greater support and legal authorities they need. That's not what the U.S. Congress is under the impression of in terms of U.S. troops in Niger. But apparently, as Senator Graham said, we may be blowing that up and getting even bigger. I mean, it's also the case, I think, that uh, you know Senator Graham, privy to some of the nation's deepest and most closely held secrets, might also have found this out through the incredibly classified network known as Google, right. where it would take you about eight seconds to discover that the U.S. has uh, troops in Niger and elsewhere. And we have a really good piece up on the site that posted actually this morning, written by Lauren, by colleagues of yours, uh, Phil Carter and Andrew Swick, who are both former Army officers, now also at the Center for New American Security. And they make a kind of startling point that I think is often lost, which is the U.S. is engaged in military operations, including combat in more than half a dozen African countries. There have been 36 American troops, including uh, the four who died in Niger, who have died in Africa. There are 800 troops in Niger who are potentially at risk, but we don't think about this. We don't think about that many countries in which the U.S. has these little teams of people taking missions. You know, Lauren, I'm glad you keep stressing this, but that are not meant to be dangerous, but can become dangerous in a hurry. And that, to me, leads to a very grim conclusion in some ways, which is these four that died who are part of this big controversy, they're not going to be the last four who die in Africa. Well, this is the part that's not so funny about Senator Graham's comments, right? Lindsey Graham and John McCain are two of the most plugged-in senators on foreign policy issues. Agree or disagree with them, they follow them very closely. 
The fact that they aren't really aware of the growing and increasingly aggressive U.S. military presence in Africa or weren't until recently illustrates that we've sort of walked ourselves into a situation where we're in a quasi-warlike footing in a number of different countries, as Yochi was just describing, without any real debate over it. It's just the president—this is— started under George W. Bush and then really escalated under President Obama, uh, really committed ourselves to to counterterrorism missions in a lot of these different countries. And it is counterterrorism for the most part, but it does raise the question, does it make sense for the U.S. to be involved in all of these different fights, right? Are all of them threats to the American homeland? And if they're not, does it make sense to think about it as being counterterrorism? Lauren, when, when you were taking part, and it's wonderful to have you on because you, you have this perspective, but when you were discussing this as policy, I mean, you were someone who isn't just a, a journalist gasbagging from outside. You know, you were someone who were kind of intimately— hey, don't uh, insult gasbagging. Yeah, it's true. It's how, it's how you make the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, exactly the uh, the big bucks that flow into our profession. But you were involved in this on, on a policy level, and when this is discussed inside the government, what's the case that's made in favor of it, and what's the case that's made against it? So I'll start with a case that's made against it in that we as a U.S. government, and I think just more broadly, don't actually have good metrics for when does security sector assistance or even counterterrorism operations, when do they work very well? And I think we can make some maybe modest cases for them working in the short term that like, yes, we are creating more trigger pullers. Yes, we are, you know, slowly eking back some or getting back some gains against some smaller terrorism groups in Africa and other theaters. But for the long term, I think most academic and even internal U.S. government studies show that it's much, much harder to make this case. And frankly, that if we actually had to start applying metrics and discussing these counterterrorism strategies and building partnership capacity strategies for over a term longer than like a couple of years or so, we would say, we don't actually know if it works, but it seems like something that we are able to do. It's basically something that we think that we are able to do well, but don't actually have a good sense of this. The positive case is that if we train troops in Niger, in Libya, and elsewhere to take on these missions against terrorist organizations, then we won't have to do them ourselves. Uh, and this has been a basically a strategy for building partner capacity for the last decade or so, if not longer, and has resulted in a, a lot of effort being put into lots of more authorities for DOD to spend money and send troops overseas to train uh, proxy forces, train partner forces, uh, to go after these groups with us in varying levels of partnership with them. Well, doesn't the first point directly undercut the second? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It does. Right. <laughs> when this is why, actually, last year in Congress, the in the National Defense Authorization Act for 2017, they said, we're done with this. Please, uh, you have to start applying metrics, at least to the DOD authorities uh, used to build partner capacity. We want to know more about how are you actually justifying, what are your goals for these missions, what are your long-term goals, how are you justifying them, and how are you measuring success in any way? Uh, because right now, it's I mean, frankly a lot of we're just going to we're going to continue to send people out to do these missions. What are what were meant to be and described. 10, 15 years ago as temporary ones. Find a country where we were doing these temporary kind of train and equip missions, what we've actually managed to pull out at any point. And it's interesting because you know, Mara Carlin, who had also served in the Pentagon, uh, also a friend and colleague for, for me, for Lauren, um, someone also tied, again, in some weird ways to the Center for New American Security, has a book coming out on this specific topic. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil and Andrew, again, in this piece, it's on Vox.com now, quote her conclusion on this, which is pretty blunt, which is, 
In practice, American efforts to build up local security forces are an oversold halfway measure that is rarely cheap and often falls short of the desired outcome. And Zach, there have been academics who have looked at this exact question, and they don't seem to like it much either. No. Uh, in fact, they some studies emphasize negative unintended consequences. Uh, the U.S. government nominally is committed to promoting democracy. Well, maybe not so much under this administration, but theoretically and in general, that's a major U.S. government goal. Now, it turns out that when you invest a lot of effort in training foreign militaries and making them more powerful than and, and sort of independently responsible from the government that they're in charge of, they tend to decide that they ought to be the government. So there's a study from two academics, Jesse Savage and Jonathan Caverly, that finds, and I'll read it, Training thus alters the balance of power between the military and the regime, resulting in greater coup propensity. They looked at data from 189 countries from 1970 to 2009, and they were studying specifically the effect of U.S. military training. So we've been doing this not just for counterterrorism, but also for essentially anti-communist stuff for a long time. And the data, and they did a number of regressions to deal with uh, potentially confounding variables, the data clearly bears out that this has risks, and risks that aren't just like it might fail. It's not cost-free. It just is understood as being cost-free. Now, our, our friends on the weeds will love to talk about uh, cost-benefit analysis when we talk about public policy domestically. You know, is it worth it? We rarely talk about those in the same terms when it comes to foreign policy and specifically military deployments. Uh, is it worth the amount of resources we're investing? Are the risks commensurate with the potential benefits? It's just not that cold. It's just, well, there's a security problem. We need to try to solve it however we can. And I think that's a huge mistake. This also comes back to a lot of really nerdy bureaucratic politics. So if you look over the past 15 years or so, you don't see the budget at the State Department going up significantly to build you know, ministries of defense that might oversee those partner military forces. Like they did a very tiny bit, but not very much. But if you look at the Department of Defense, they've increased their number of authorities and the amount of money they can spend to par train partner military forces hugely. The oversight that they have uh, from the SASC and the HASC over that, that exists to some Sorry, degree. Sorry, SASC and HASC? The Senate Armed Services Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, who are nominally providing, nominally, they really are providing oversight over the Department of Defense. But they're really big cheerleaders of these building partner capacity efforts and, for the most part, aren't necessarily always looking for them to say, stop doing this. They are, are looking for them to say, please help us make the case for why they're working. But it's rarely been the case where they said, go shut these down, except in examples like Pakistan, where there's other sort of human rights and other issues. And there, there is the kind of cynical truth underlying this, which is the metric in some ways that matters most is, are U.S. troops dying? I mean— when I say matters most, I mean in terms of the debate at home, we don't tend to debate, does it work? We tend to debate, hey, we just lost four people in Niger. What the hell just happened in Niger? And for the most part, 36 soldiers dying is obviously, for those 36 families, I mean, it's a tragedy for all of us, I think, of almost unimaginable proportion. That said, if you look at it in the kind of cold lens of, of military casualty numbers, that's not very much compared to how many we've died in Afghanistan, how many have died in Iraq, how many are even beginning to die in Syria. And I think provide that this kind of churns along, bureaucratic inertia being what it is and sort of momentum within one's money spent, nobody wants to stop spending it, unless you have a lot of American soldiers die. It's sort of, I mean, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, if you guys feel differently, but it's sort of hard to picture this stopping. No, I think that's right. I just, I don't think the public cares very much. Uh, there's this profound separation between the toll that these kind of missions 
levy on foreign countries and on military families and the general public, who can charitably be described as not caring about foreign policy at the best of times. It takes a really major crisis to get the public really invested. And this is terrible in many ways, and at the very least deserves more public debate. But it, this isn't an Iraq war. Uh, and, and absent something like that or a terrorist attack that claims hundreds of American lives, you're not going to get the level of public debate that it deserves. You know, what's interesting is I think there's a possibility that that debate may come from the demands on particularly the Army, but the military forces more broadly to do these sorts of missions. The The military has, uh, we talk about a readiness problem, which basically means that is the U.S. military, particularly the ground forces, are they ready for major combat operations against any number of possible adversaries? Like, say, North Korea? Like, say, North Korea. Hypothetically or, speaking, purely or, hypothetically right, speaking. Russia or China, there's all kinds of scenarios that they may want to plan for. But if you have an increasing number of training missions like this, where, which are pulling some of our most talented and high-end forces to do uh, what are seemingly low-risk, but actually possibly increasingly higher-risk missions, are, they, are we actually able to be as prepared as we want to be for these much, much, much higher-risk scenarios? And the answer to that is probably no. And in all likelihood, if asked, the Army would say we would far rather be in the United States training for possible combat with North Korea than in Africa or Middle East or elsewhere doing training missions in some form. And we I sort of, I think, end this with Right now, the reality is, and I, Laura and I completely agree, that they'd prefer to do that. But right now, we have this sort of forever war taking place in the shadows in Africa where it's expanding. Well, as we heard from, from Lindsey Graham, the aggressiveness of it is expanding. The possibility of casualties is expanding. And there's very little to no political oversight, no public debate. I agree that may change. But for now, we're just in this weird moment where we don't know what happened in Niger. We don't know what's happening in some of these other African countries where the war is being fought in the shadows. We do know that there will be other casualties. We're going to talk for a second about MeUndies, which are the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. And you could go check it out yourself at MeUndies.com worldly. So here's the thing. They are unmatched in their comfort because they use a naturally soft fabric that is three times softer than cotton. Right now, they also have glow-in-the-dark underwear called Lights Out, so you could have your underwear drawer and your underwear both glowing at the same time, you know, if that's kind of your thing. If underwear isn't your thing, they also make incredibly good socks. MeUndies has been generous. They've sent some to me, to Zach, to some other people here at Vox, so we could vouch personally for the fact that they are pretty much just awesome. And so to get 20% off the best and the softest underwear and socks you'll ever own, and free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com worldly. That's again, MeUndies.com worldly. I want to talk to you about HelloFresh, which is the leading meal delivery kit service. And I could vouch for the fact that as a parent, we have two toddlers. The very last thing we want to do is try to figure out what to cook and how to cook it when we are simply fried from trying to keep them from killing each other. And companies like HelloFresh make that easy. So here's what HelloFresh is. Right now, HelloFresh offers a classic box, a veggie box, and a family box. You can order three meals a week, four meals a week, five meals a week for either two people or four people. In my house, we'd prefer four because our kids can really eat. The new recipes come pretty much every week, and they're designed to make you feel unstoppable. It's six easy-to-master steps 
where you can chop, zest, and cook like you've been doing it all your life. Most of the recipes take 30 minutes, and they don't need much equipment. Right now, they're offering summer meals, light meals, breakfast options, and they work out to be less than $10 a meal. So when you have other things going on in your life, whether you're working hard, whether you've got kids, whether you've got dogs, the last thing you want to do is start figuring out what to cook late at night, HelloFresh has got you covered. And here's how you can get some of this delivered to your house. You just go to HelloFresh.com with the promo code WORLDLY30. When you do that, you get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. And again, to get that, you go HelloFresh.com, WORLDLY30. So for elsewhere this week, we're going to Puerto Rico, literally. I flew to the island a couple of weeks ago to get a sense of the recovery efforts and to see what the storm did firsthand so I wasn't just gas bagging it from here. What I saw is very different from what President Trump thinks is going on. And you can kind of get a sense of that disconnect when he was asked about the administration's relief efforts late last week. I'd say it was a 10. I'd say it was probably the most difficult when you talk about relief, when you talk about search, when you talk about all of the different levels, uh, and even when you talk about lives saved. So uh, a 10 out of 10. Look at the, number. the situation on the ground tells a very, very different story. Puerto Rico has a number of serious problems. A lack of clean water. The sewage system is a mess. It's hard to find medical care. There's absolutely no cell service. But arguably the biggest problem it has is the electrical grid. Nearly 80% of Puerto Rico still has no power. The island's governor says electricity will be back on by Christmas, but an official I interviewed on the island laughed out loud when I read him back that estimate. Here's the thing. The grid was in really bad shape even before the hurricane hit. So getting it back even to where it was could cost up to $5 billion, and probably a lot more. Puerto Rico's electric utility is more than $9 billion in debt. It filed for bankruptcy last summer. It's lost thousands of workers in recent years, and new ones don't have the kind of specialized knowledge you need to run such an outdated grid. Most of Puerto Rico's generators are so old that the companies that made them don't anymore, so you can't find replacement parts. There is one potential bright spot. A sprawling wind farm that made it through Hurricane Maria unscathed. It could power tens of thousands of Puerto Rican homes, but it may be months before those turbines can even be turned on. After the uh, hurricane, it hasn't stopped raining, so it's been uh, difficult to um, clean the roads and, and have the, the site back again. That's Ruben Rivera. He's in charge of Puerto Rico's only wind farm in a place called Santa Isabel on the south side of the island. It's one of the biggest sources of renewable energy in the entire Caribbean. We're talking in his pickup truck, on our way to see the wind turbines. Yeah, you can take a look at the blades and the, uh, the transformer, the tower itself, the base, the concrete base, the bolts. It's uh, structurally fine. So compared to that uh, greenhouse right there, so. <laughs> Rivera is pointing to a nearby greenhouse that was flattened by the storm. His own house made it through Maria intact, but he says power has been spotty. He lives about 90 minutes away from the wind farm. A couple days after the storm hit, Rivera finally made it back out to Santa Isabel. He was afraid of what he'd find, but the 44 turbines were basically untouched. Okay, so yeah, we arrived to turbine G26. 
The wind farm stretches over more than 5,500 acres of rolling green farmland. And when I visited this month, I could see tractors moving in the distance. The sprinklers, though, were idle because of the power outages. The turbines look like giant towers with propellers attached. Rivera takes me inside one of them. But if you can tell, the walls around, we don't have any moisture inside. Um, you can tell that we're ready to re-energize and start producing. It, it is, it's like spotless. Yeah, yeah. Rivera is so proud that the wind farm made it through the hurricane. He genuinely loves his work. For as long as I've been here, I, I love every bit of what I'm doing. He feels like he's giving back to his community, to his island. He's helping Puerto Rico stand on its own. We don't have uh, coal, we don't have gas, but we do have uh, sun and wind. So if we want to develop this country and be self-sufficient, and we should build more of these facilities. I think that's the, uh, the future for our island. But here's the problem. Rivera's wind farm needs one thing to get going after the hurricane, a spark from the electric grid. That spark would get the turbines moving. The wind farm could then generate enough electricity to power 35,000 homes. And remember, this is an island of 3.4 million people. That's a lot of homes. But the grid is so damaged that even getting that small amount of electricity could take weeks. So Rivera spends his days checking and rechecking the turbines, making sure they're ready to go once the grid comes back online. He's on the clock. The turbine maker says their products can't stand idle for more than six weeks. We're about to hit that deadline. We're on a tropical island. There's a lot of moisture that gets built within the, uh, the turbine, and that might uh, damage the equipment. So we need the energy to get this uh, dehumidifiers back on and dry out the turbine for uh, two or three days before we uh, start generating. Rivera believes alternative energy is the key to the island's future. But for now, his wind farm, just like everything else here, is dependent on Puerto Rico's damaged electrical grid getting back up and running. There's not much that we can do right now to uh, run the site. Uh, so we need the grid uh, to be able to generate. That's it for this week's episode of Worldly. Thanks to Zach, to our guest host, Lauren DeYoung Schulman, our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard, and our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Please email us your comments and suggestions, worldly at vox.com. I promise we read all of them. You can also tweet at us, hashtag worldly. And if you like the show, subscribe and then leave us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us and listen to what you just listened to. We'll see you all next week. Music.